Mad Centrist Podcast, the political podcast for the rest of us. If you're new to this podcast, this is the place where you should be. If you think today's politics is a little bit too conservative or a little bit too liberal, and you're like the vast majority of people in this country, somewhere in the center, there seems to be nothing for us to listen to, nothing for us to hear news from, nothing for us to rally around. They often talk about, on one side or the other, the silent majority. I have to put it forward that I think the silent majority is really the centrists among us. Who really talks to the people who are level-headed and want to get along and compromise and make things happen? Who really talks about the person who is calm and normal and just wants to see progress happen? Maybe willing to give a little to get a little? None of these things make headlines. They certainly don't make people want to get up and cheer. So this podcast is for the people who want to deal with politics in a civil manner and go head-to-head with each other with respect. That's not really everybody, but if you're here for that, you found your home. I wanted to talk today about something I mentioned on the first episode of the Mad Centrist podcast, and that is the word compromise. I'm not going to talk about the word per se until a little bit later, but let's mention some compromises throughout history that have been pretty darn important to this nation. Now, as you may have figured out, on this podcast, you occasionally get little tidbits of history. This is going to be no different. Some of these are pretty cool tidbits. There's one real neat gem later on that I think everybody will enjoy. I had a lot of fun learning about it myself, so hopefully you will enjoy it as well. The first compromise I'm going to bring up is from the very founding of the country, the Great Compromise. Everybody who learned about this in school learned it involved Benjamin Franklin and it involved two representatives from Connecticut. What was on the line really had to do with the Congress of the United States and how it was going to be brought about. The larger states wanted it to be based on representation from population. The smaller states wanted it to be based on a standardized representation. Neither one were willing to budge, and it looked like this might be something that might bring the Continental Congress to its knees and and maybe never bring about the founding of the country. Well, that's not what happened. What happened was two representatives from Connecticut came forward with a plan that suggested two houses. The Senate would be based on two representatives per state, and the House of Representatives would be based on population of each state. So it was a combining of both ideas into something that everything could get behind. And that great compromise is very, very key to the very founding of the United States of America. Jump forward a bunch of years. Really the title of a book by Doris Kearns Goodwin a fantastic book, by the way, I highly recommend it. The book's called A Team of Rivals, and it has to do with Abraham Lincoln and his running for president. I mentioned this in an earlier episode that Abraham Lincoln is one of the only politicians in American history who ran as a third party candidate and won. When Abraham Lincoln was elected to office, the Republicans had not won one single nationwide office. So he changed the paradigm. He made the Republicans a part of American's fabric. But what does it mean when I say team of rivals and and the author titles the book that? Well, it's a really interesting story. 
when he was nominated for the Republican ticket, he was actually up against Edward Bates, Simon P. Chase, and a really talented William H. Seward of New York. The people that he was up against were well-spoken, well-heeled politicians, and Abraham Lincoln was known, but he wasn't known as well. He really did a great job behind the scenes with his campaign manager of trying to make him sound like the choice that was good, the choice that was safe, the choice that you could come across as your next choice, let's say. The way that they tried to pitch Lincoln was, if your guy doesn't stand a chance, well, consider our guy. And Lincoln became the number two vote of almost everybody in that Congress who really wasn't voting for him as number one. And after uh, numerous arguments, debates, and voting, they actually did pick Lincoln. So what did Lincoln do after that? Well, after that, he decided to offer positions in his cabinet. The attorney general for Abraham Lincoln was Edward Bates. The secretary of the treasury, Simon P. Chase. And his fiercest opponent, and later his closest ally, William H. Seward, became the secretary of state. So rivals became leaders in one of the most crucial times in American history. This was a compromise that helped preserve the Union. Let's move forward a little bit more. 1945, Truman. Truman took office after FDR. FDR served three complete terms and part of a fourth one. He's actually part of the reason why presidents of the United States are now bound to just two terms. The country did not want that to happen again. Nobody was really upset with FDR for that, but they just thought that that was too much power consolidated in one place. But Harry Truman took office. Right after he became president, he was in a position to nominate a Supreme Court justice after Owen Roberts stepped down. Democrats had been picking Supreme Court justices for 12 years. 12 years on the Supreme Court with pick after pick after pick really stacks the court in one party's favor. I know we're all supposed to believe the Supreme Court is not really party politics, but just like every other human on the planet, they are prone to human failings. And that includes trying your best to get rid of those political ties and probably failing along the lines every now and then. I'm not begrudging them anything. I'm saying that just makes them human. So if the Democrats had picked for 12 years in a row, and here Truman is, another Democrat taking office, he could have done the same. He could have really stacked the court. But he realized that he would put forth a lot of goodwill if he recognized that imbalance and tried to erect it. So President Truman nominated Harold Burton, a Republican senator, to the Supreme Court. That was a really good compromise to really show that we have to be governed in ways that aren't just one-sided. 1964, the Civil Rights Act. Lyndon B. Johnson, President of the United States, had a lot of significant domestic policy achievements, but the Civil Rights Act of 1964 was the first major win. The Democratic president could not have had it happen without the support of Republicans in the Senate. Southern Democrats were dead set against the civil rights. I know that sounds strange now when you consider the two parties and how they feel, but there's some history behind that. It's not really worth going into right now. Maybe we'll revisit that in another podcast. But let's just say 
the party of Lincoln still managed to maintain some of its original against slavery mindset, and the Senate Republicans were needed by Lyndon B. Johnson to pass it. As I mentioned, Southern Democrats were dead set against the Civil Rights Act, and the Northern Democrats, they didn't have the votes. So the Democrat majority leader, Mike Mansfield, asked Republican Everett Dirksen for help. Dirksen made an impassioned speech on the Senate floor and swayed the votes to end a filibuster, and later the bill was passed. Let's skip forward just a few years. One giant step forward for mankind. 1969, when the Russians beat the USA to space with Sputnik, President Dwight Eisenhower called on Congress to do better. Both parties came through with the creation and the funding of NASA, and Apollo 11 landed on the moon about a decade later. There is one event in American history that most of us around today recognize as really being a horrendous day, uh, something we will never forget, and that's September 11th, 2001. It was an unprecedented attack on American soil, the worst act of terrorism today. September 11th is seared into the memories of those who lived through it. A political divided America took a backseat to the unity of one nation. President George W. Bush was, for a time, one of the most popular presidents ever. Congress united to sing God Bless America on the Capitol steps. An authorization of military force was nearly unanimously passed. The Patriot Act soon followed. A decade later, the military action, as well as the controversial Patriot Act, would not enjoy the same levels of support, to say the least. But a brief period of time, our nation was united. It was just a shame it took an act of terror to finally bring us all together. Other examples of such cooperation, such compromise, include the Endangered Species Act, the Americans with Disabilities Act, also food stamps, and Social Security. So why am I bringing all of these examples up? Simple. To illustrate the amazing things we are capable of, if we all work together. To give examples of when compromise was used to advance the American dream, compromise is not a dirty word. It's how we get things done. I have to make a little distinction though. When you're talking about compromise, when you're talking about making things, one party and the other party coming together and making a deal, you don't want to necessarily have a winner or a loser. Now that's, that's very important. Unfortunately, we're stuck in a two-party system. This makes compromise a challenge. After all, why compromise when you can strive to earn 51% of the people's opinions and votes and then ram your agenda down the opposition's throats? Well, there are a few reasons. First, your party will not always be in power. It's probably a good idea to build up some goodwill for that rainy day when your fortunes stumble and the other side gains the majority. Show a willingness to compromise now. Lead by example and show the American people that your party has integrity to lead by consensus. Second, and honestly, really more important, the other side is not your enemy. We are all American citizens. We are all striving for this country to move forward and get better. We may have differences of opinion on the how that should happen, 
maybe even some difference of opinion on the why. But that doesn't really negate the fact that all of us have the same set of goals. We all want America to be a better place for our kids, for the future, for the world. So really, try and keep that in mind when you're trying to think of how you want to go about working with that person who has a difference of opinion. Remember, you have the same large picture goals. And then work from that framework to come up with a compromise. Alright, I'm going to pause here. If you are one of those extreme members of the two-party system, take some deep breaths, calm down, count to ten, close your eyes, breathe deeply, whatever helps. But it's true. We aren't enemies of each other. The most liberal Democrat and the most conservative Republican can actually get along. As long as you have respect for each other, and as long as you go at these things with the thought that you're going to have to give a little to get a little, it can be done. So what does it mean to be a member of a political party? Here we go. It's very simple. It means you have a group of people who loosely believe in a set of political ideas. Not every member of a party needs to believe in every ideal the party holds, but generally the majority of ideas are agreed upon, or at least tolerated due to agreement with other ideas. Let's give this the pub treatment. Imagine you're out with a few friends. Get to talking politics, politely and being very much northern-minded. The three of you agree on four things, two of you agree on three things. A person overhears the conversation and chimes in with some good thoughts, but generally agrees with what you've been saying. A short time later, you have accidentally ended up engaging most of the patrons in the pub, and generally people agree on two to four issues. Though which of the issues they agree on varies from person to person, but you have a general agreement on some issues that you're talking about. Before you know it, you have started a club that agrees to come back the first Thursday of every month. Word spreads, and soon other pubs start clubs, and you have organically started a movement of generally like-minded thinkers. A political party is born. Maybe some people are learning a bit more east than others, and some people a little bit more west than others. But everyone can keep things high-minded and civil. And there is general agreement on significant issues. When one of the original friends decides to run for local elected office, they cruise to victory with the backing of the party. So what is a party? It's a group of people loosely organized around a set of ideas. More importantly, not your enemies. Heck, they're probably your friends, neighbors, even family. And you know what? That's okay. Because having different ideas doesn't make someone evil. But if the other side is not evil, how can we deal with them? It's very simple. Compromise. Let's start by now getting back to the original thought on this and defining the word compromise. According to the Oxford Language Dictionary, a compromise is an agreement or settlement of dispute that is reached by each side making concessions. My definition? A deal struck between parties where no side is either completely happy or completely angry. This makes labor disputes a good example. The workers may strike for better wages or better benefits. The owners come back with a concession or two and the haggling starts. By and large, at the end, neither the workers nor the owners gets everything they want, but they both get some things they wanted. There might be a raise in wages halfway to what the workers really wanted when the owners didn't want to give a raise at all. 
it might be covering 75% of healthcare costs when it was originally 50% and the workers wanted 100%. It is some sort of meeting in the middle. In a complex negotiation, you might get 100% of one thing and zero of another, or anywhere in between. However a compromise goes, it's very hard to compromise with an enemy. I think we need to understand that principle second. The first thing to understand, with very few exceptions, the people of the United States are not enemies of one another. I know some politicians say things. They call the other side things like vermin or deplorables, and I'm happy to report that is their problem, not ours. So what exactly is the other side? A group of people loosely organized around a set of ideas. They have spouses, kids, moms, dads, friends, jobs. They rent their homes or own them. They have cars, they have bills to pay. They are a lot like us. We have a lot less to fight over than we think. We have a lot more in common than we think. Most people are not even that far off in the issues than we think. What the heck are we talking about? Why am I bringing all this up? Why am I talking about compromise so much on this podcast? The short answer is because of Matt Gates. Matt Gates is a Republican. He's a House of Representatives representative from the great state of Florida. You see, the House of Representatives is made up of two parties. It is pretty rare in the history of the House for it to be so evenly divided as it is today. Usually one party has more than a 15 vote majority. The party in power varies, but typically it is a party in the majority with more than a handful of seats. Even when a typical House of Representatives is in session, there is still compromise. There is always some sort of compromise. This is how Congress works. However, it is more than necessary when the majority is slim. This is not something new to our current time in history. It is really just common sense. Another common sense thing that history has recently made clear is that shutting down the government is not a good idea. The party that pulls the trigger on shutting down the government usually suffers from that choice. Republicans with a bit of a memory should know this, and those who experience it, remember it. Here's something else to consider. The Speaker of the House is typically not super popular among members of Congress, because they are the person who needs to organize the compromising for the sake of doing the people's business. It is a high-profile and somewhat thankless job. At least it's third in line for the presidency. It is very simple for someone in your own party to make you look bad for simply doing your job. To be 100% clear, I do not know Matt Gates, nor do I know Kevin McCarthy, but I am pretty well versed in politics. When Speaker McCarthy chose to work with the Democrats in the House to pass a spending gap measure, he was saving his own party by doing something some in his party did not want him to do. In short, he was doing his job. The Speaker of the House is essentially the compromiser-in-chief. If he did not go out and talk to Democrats, he would not be able to give people in his own party who did not want this to happen the cover that they needed. The smart political move for Matt Gates would have been to blow up at Kevin McCarthy, to rant and rave and then move on, because that's how the government generally works. 
if you have someone in your party who cannot go along with what you need to do, you reach across the aisle and you make sure you secure one extra vote to cover that person, and then take a little bit of heat. I'm not sure if Matt Gates is aware or ignorant of the need to, as Speaker, be free to act in this manner, or if he's just trying to get his 15 minutes of fame, not to be confused with infamy. I have heard and read some stories that hint that these gentlemen, to be polite, do not get along at all, not even a little. I don't know that that's true, but rumor has it Matt Gates and Kevin McCarthy are not exactly friends. I also know that Matt Gates seemed to have laid his trap well. Apparently, Kevin McCarthy walked right into it. If you remember the ridiculous umpteen rounds of votes it took for the Republicans to agree to make Kevin McCarthy Speaker of the House, you might remember the concession McCarthy needed to make. He had to agree that it would only take one member of his party to call for a vote of no confidence. Matt Gates had what he needed as soon as McCarthy utilized the other side to help the United States of America be able to pay their bills. As Speaker of the House, this is the type of thing McCarthy is supposed to do. As a Republican, he did exactly what he was supposed to do. He took the blame and let the Republicans grumble about him and make it sound good to the extreme base while avoiding the repercussions of quote-unquote Republicans shutting down the government. In normal times, it would have been recognized by people who understood these things to be a pretty smart move. These are not normal times. Working with the other side is now a capital offense and can cost you your career. Just ask Kevin McCarthy. Either Matt Gates utilized this ploy to settle a grade school style grudge, or he doesn't know how the House of Representatives works. Or, I suppose, though less likely, he is a true believer and considers himself righteous in his fight for, well, honestly, I'm not really sure what that fight would be for. Matt Gates managed to stop the House of Representatives in its tracks. Matt Gates, if you're listening, Congress is not about getting your way. It is about getting things done through working together for the people of the country. Not for you, not even for your party, and not for your caucus but for we, the people. This is why when you have a few seats past the majority and you have people working together, you can force the speaker to either work with the other side or get nothing done. The Freedom Caucus forced McCarthy to work with the Democrats and then they essentially fired him for doing what they forced him to do. I have to give credit to Speaker McCarthy for his actions. He knew it was necessary, even so. He had to know it would cost him his job, but it was the right thing to do for the country and even for his party. For his troubles, he became the first speaker to be removed midterm in the history of the United States and the second shortest tenured speaker in history. Well, not cut short by death or given an honor. That last one, really interesting story, and that's the little gem that I wanted to give you I mentioned earlier in the podcast. This is really cool, and this has to do with compromise as well. So who was the shortest that was not cut short by death? That would be Theodore Pomeroy, but it's a very cool story. On the last day in Congress, the Speaker of the House announced that he was being tapped for a cabinet position and had to resign. That means that there was one more day that Congress was in session. 
Theodore Pomeroy was a pretty popular congressman, and he had announced his retirement. He was also leaving at the end of the congressional session. So it's really interesting and very cool moment happened in the United States history, one that really isn't taught in the schools, but is nonetheless quite an excellent thing to learn about. Theodore Pomeroy was proposed as the Speaker of the House. Everybody thought that it would be a great honor to give a representative who had already announced his retirement this honor for one day. So Theodore Pomeroy was elected Speaker of the House unanimously for a single day to honor his tenure in the House of Representatives. Compromise. That was a really cool compromise to just notice that somebody who had given a good job and was about to retire, let them go out as the Speaker of the House. Even if it is only for one day and even if it's only largely ceremonial, it was an excellent compromise. That's where the episode started and that's where it's going to end. This is kind of a short one today. That's alright though. Just remember this. Compromise is not a bad word. Compromise gets work done. Compromising with your fellow Americans has produced some of the best results in history. So I'm going to issue a little challenge out there for you mad centrists. The next time you hear someone speak disparaging about one political group or another, defend them. Especially if that's a group you normally disparage yourself or wouldn't be caught dead defending. I want you to defend them. Remember, these people just have different ideas. They might be neighbors, they might be friends, they might be family. You've got to remember that they're fellow Americans. If somebody has different ideas from you, that doesn't make them evil. So I want you to defend them. And I don't care what side of the aisle you're on or what side of the aisle they're on. Treat the group like they are real people because they absolutely are real people. So thank you everyone for listening. Once again, this is The Mad Centrist, the political podcast for the rest of us.